Hi, church. Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh. I'm a pastor here. Thank you for joining us. We're continuing our study of Romans. This is part 31. We are in chapter 10. You can turn there in your Bible. Follow along on your handout. I title this message, Salvation is Offered to Everyone. So where are we at in our Romans study overall? Seasons 1, 2, and 3 are done. We're now in the middle of season 4. So season 1 was... God is holy and righteous, and we are not. We are wicked and sinful. Season two was the good news of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Season three was God's sanctification, that God is helping us become less sinful and more holy. And now we're in the middle of God's sovereignty, season four, talking about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and a whole lot about the nation of Israel. We're rolling into chapter 10 now, which is a significant chapter. We're talking about Israel's current rejection of Jesus Christ. But then we're going to get into God's future plans for the nation of Israel. This is a timely chapter. Paul's concern for his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters is incredible, like Brian discussed last week. Basically, Israel is currently rejecting Jesus, opening the door for a bunch of non-Jews, us, to get saved. And someday, though, there's going to be a revival in the nation of Israel. That's what chapters 10 and 11 get into. Some might say, well, how did Israel miss God's plan? And so Paul is in the process of explaining God's plan and how Israel's current rejection works into that. Think about it this way. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish nation was supposedly prepared for the arrival of their Messiah. But then when the actual Messiah arrived, they rejected him. But there's always a faithful remnant like Caleb taught us. I personally know Jewish Christians, but the majority of the Jews on the planet right now are not followers of Jesus Christ. Look at these statistics. Right now, the world's population is about 8 billion people. And out of that, about 16 million of them are Jews, which is 0.2%. And out of those 16 million Jews, about 350,000 would claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ which is only about 2%. That statistic would break Paul's heart. Paul would want to see that number change, and so would we, that more Jews would understand that Jesus is their long-anticipated Messiah. So we're going to dig into Romans chapter 10. I'm going to pray, and we will study it. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for Christmas time. We thank you for beautiful mountains covered with snow and the lights, and we thank you for worshiping singing Christmas songs and a warm building and a chance to study your word. God, I ask right now that you would teach your sons and daughters in this room that all the things that are distracting us and all of our to-do list and our worries, all of those things would just pass to the background and that your spirit would just speak to us in a personal way. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I want to back up a few verses cover some of the verses that Brian covered last week again briefly. So why did the Jews miss Jesus? Because they thought they could work their way to heaven by obeying the law, by obeying the commands. And so Paul again is explaining the current unbelief of the Jewish people. So Romans chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So Brian last week talked all about Paul's incredible heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. They have this incredible zeal for God, but it is misplaced. And then verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, 
They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So they didn't understand God's plan, so they made their own plan. And verse 4 would have been incredibly controversial to Jews living in the first century. Jesus is the end of the law for everyone who believes, but that's the choice. It's either self-righteousness or it's God's righteousness. And that word law in this context means obeying God's commandments. Now, obviously, we want to obey God's laws to become more holy, to become less sinful, but we do not want to obey God's laws out of a vain, useless attempt to try to earn our way to heaven. But those are the two options. You're either picking the I'm going to work my way to heaven, self-righteousness option, which is every religion on the planet for the record. Or you go, I'm going to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's God's righteousness, and that's historic Christianity. So that's your first blank on your handout. People seem to be incurably addicted to trying to work their way to heaven. Why is that? It's pride. I can do this. I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. I can be good enough to get to heaven on my own merit. But like it says in verse 4, Jesus is the end of the law, the end of trying to work your way to heaven because he's the only one who could actually do it, the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. We are not perfect. We are far from it. We are sinners. We are lawbreakers. Apart from Jesus, every one of us is bound for hell. Jesus spoke about God's standard in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Skip to verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Some of these religious leaders actually had the audacity to go to Jesus and say, hey, I've obeyed all the commands perfectly. And Jesus kept exposing them as frauds over and over again. And then there's a critical verse in James talking about God's standard. James chapter 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. So that's God's standard, perfection. When you see God's standard, you, you should realize, I cannot possibly hope to fulfill this. You go, I'm a lawbreaker. That would cause you to turn to the Savior in desperation. I'm a sinner. Lord, save me. So I have an illustration for you. What if I told you to be saved, you had to climb to the moon? Here's a skill drawing a scaled illustration of the earth and the moon. It's 250,000 miles from the earth to the moon. I was like, if you want to go to heaven, you got to climb to the moon. Go up. If I had a big ladder, could I do it? No. If you got in a skyscraper and rode to the top? No. You go, I know I'm going to climb a mountain, Mount Everest. It's the tallest mountain in the world. It's five miles high. Well, that only leaves 249,995 miles to go. The Jews, they tried to climb that mountain hard. They had 613 laws. They had rules about the rules, and they were trying to obey them all, but they couldn't. And then when Jesus arrives, he says, it's not just about these external laws. It's about what's going on in your heart. And when I say heart, I mean like the core of who you are, your thoughts and your feelings and your motivation. So Jesus might say, you've not committed adultery, but you've lusted after that woman in your heart and God sees that sin. Or maybe you haven't stolen your neighbor's property, but you've coveted their life on Instagram or something and God sees that sin as well. So either you disobey the law externally or you disobey the law internally. Either way, you sin. It's like you fall back down the mountain. And you go, there's no way I'm going to go 250,000 miles to the moon. And just for the record, most people are not trying to climb any religious mountains. They're like, I'll just sit on a couch and watch my show. 
But in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's a bunch of religious people trying to make their way to heaven, climbing to the moon, so to speak, through their good works. But bottom line, the person who's like desperately trying to climb a mountain to get to the moon, or a person that's just given up and is watching a show, they both will not make it to the moon. So enter Jesus. He, in Romans chapter 5, it says, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So in my illustration, it's like Jesus is the Saturn V rocket. That's the rocket that took the astronauts to the moon back in the 60s and 70s. So in faith, you get in the rocket. You put your trust in Jesus Christ to get you to the moon. So for the person desperately trying to climb a mountain to get to the moon, or the person's like, whatever, and just watching TV, either way, Jesus is the solution. That's what Paul and company are going around preaching at this time. You got to get on the rocket known as Jesus Christ. That's like the Josh paraphrase translation. If you actually want to get to the moon. Because once you believe in Jesus Christ, once you're saved, self-righteousness, working your way to heaven is over. Like it says in verse 4, Jesus is the end of the law. Because there's only one way that you would ever get to the moon. It's through a rocket. And so Paul is going to show in our verses tonight that this is not some new idea. He's going to quote six different Old Testament verses. Our first verse, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Before we unpack this verse, you see that phrase, Moses writes. Why do we believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because Jesus did. Here's all the references in the Gospels where Jesus is naming Moses as the author of the first five books. Jesus believed this. Paul and the other apostles did. Why does this matter? Because liberal theologians say, oh, no, the first five books, they were not written by Moses. Somebody else wrote them, and they lied, and they said they were Moses. Jesus would be wrong in that scenario. I'm going to go with Jesus being right. I'll be on Jesus' side on this one. Always be on Jesus' side on every issue. They believe Moses wrote it. That's good enough for me. But what is Paul's point in quoting this verse here, Leviticus 18? It says, if you disobey the law, you're cursed. If you obey the law, you'll live. But what's the problem? Nobody has ever obeyed the law perfectly except for one person, Jesus Christ. So when Moses writes, obey the law and live... Only a self-righteous, proud person is like, yes, I choose that option. I'm going to obey the law perfectly. That's how I'm going to earn my salvation. You've never seen anybody climb to the moon, but watch me. That's a joke. Nobody's doing this. Nobody's climbing 250,000 miles to the moon. So your second blank, if you choose the self-righteous option, you should know all you need to do is perfectly keep the law internally and externally for the rest of your life, and you will be saved. Uh, is there another option? <laughs> I can't do that. I know you can't do it either, but that's what our section is talking about. Now, if you pick the law option, the self-righteousness option, it must be done perfectly. Remember the verses we read in Matthew and James. The law was supposed to show the Jews and every religious person ever how broken they are and how we need a Savior. But instead, the Jews clung to the law and they rejected Jesus. Next verse, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, 
Paul paraphrases another Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, which is talking about how God's commands are not hard to find. The law isn't in some distant land. It's close to you. You can obey it. Moses was calling the Israelites to obey God's law. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expands on this verse where the Jews saw commandments. Paul sees Jesus. Again, they're missing the whole point of the law. You're supposed to read God's law and think, oh, I can't do this on my own. Enter Jesus' Saturn V rocket. But instead, those who are trusting in their good works, their law keeping, they read the commands and go, oh, I can do all this perfectly. I can climb to heaven. I can bring the Messiah down to me. I can bring God down to my level. Your third blank, we see here that salvation based on rule keeping is a denial of the incarnation. The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas time is that God became a man to save us. We're going to start our Christmas series next week, like Brent said. In other words, I can bring Jesus down to my level through my self-righteousness, my good works, my law keeping. So religious people want to bring Jesus down to their level. But a righteousness by faith says we don't need to try to do the impossible. And it's totally unnecessary because Jesus Christ already did it for us. He became a man to save us. Our next verse, verse 7. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is a paraphrase of the next verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 13. Again, in the original text, it's talking about how God's law isn't hard to find. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, you don't understand what Jesus did for you. He went into the pit. He died for you. He went into the grave for you. And not only that, he ascended from the grave or he resurrected. And so the Jews were rejecting two provisions of Christ. There's two ways. First, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And then second, Jesus rose from the dead after he was crucified for our sins, the resurrection. These are two of the hardest doctrines for the Jews to accept. So think about it this way. Somebody who's trying to earn their way to heaven, they would have trouble accepting what God already did for them. Okay, our next verse, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul quotes the next verse, Deuteronomy 30, 14. That phrase, near you, in the original language, meant like right there. You can just grab it. It's right in front of you. You don't need to work your way to heaven because Jesus already did it. Everything has been accomplished. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he rose from the dead. And all that is left for you to do is trust that. So I remember when I received this gift, I was a young boy. It was actually November 9th, 1983. So I just celebrated my 40-year Christian birthday. And so this is what I wrote in my Bible when I was a little boy. I was very, I was a good writer. I pray to become a Christian. So here's the story. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for 40 years. I went to Sunday school and church and all that growing up. And I knew, don't lie, don't steal. I knew the commandments. But then I visited my cousin in Iowa. And I had a little red toy tractor like the one on the right. But he had a little red toy trailer like the one on the left. And I was sitting there playing with him. And I was like, oh man, I could take this trailer home and imagine the fun I would have if I could hook this up to my tractor. My good times will be amazing. But I remember very clearly thinking, do not steal. And I was like, I don't care. And I stuffed it in my pocket. But God gave me a second chance that night. My grandma was like folding my pants. I was getting my pajamas on and the, the trailer fell on the ground. She picked it up. She's like, what's this? And 
And in my mind, I thought, don't lie. And I said, Grandma, I got stuck in my pocket. <laughs> I knew the commands. Don't lie to your grandma about things you've stolen from your cousins. <laughs> I hope you can see why I stole it, though. It is... It's pretty amazing. So then I put it in my suitcase. I smuggled it home. And I forgot about it. And I remember this moment as a young boy pulling my clothes out of my suitcase. And it was like sitting there. And instead of being elated, like, yes, imagine the fun I'm going to have now, all I felt was like conviction and guilt. And I grabbed it. And I walked into my dad and mom's room. I threw it on my dad's bed. I was like, Dad, I stole that. And my dad said, hey, son, sit down. And so he shared the message of the gospel with me. He said, God loves you, but you're a sinner. And I said, I know. He said, but Jesus provided a way to deal with your sins, and it's a free gift. I remember him saying that. It's a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. I didn't need to prove I was a good person. I didn't need to do a bunch of penance to pay for my crimes of stealing and lying. I just had to receive this gift that God offers to sinners through Jesus Christ. The gospel was near me. It was simple. That's the message that Paul and company are proclaiming. Salvation is a free gift to everyone who believes by grace through faith in Christ. You could be 6 or 36 or 66. Salvation is a free gift to everyone who believes. It's not complicated. It's about your mouth and your heart. No one needs to try to work their way to heaven. You don't need to try to climb to the moon. Jesus is the Saturn V rocket. This is a message, though, the Jewish people in general have rejected, and all religious people for that matter. So now Paul clarifies what faith is. Verse 9, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is one of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible because it's the gospel in 26 words, and every word is important. Again, when it says your heart, that's the core of who you are, your thoughts, your feelings, your motivations, summed up in this word heart. We need to clarify believe, because there's this famous verse in James 2. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So demons believe, and the demons are not going to heaven. People are like, well, I believe in God. Well, the demons believe in God. So <laughs> there's more to it than that. Believing in God is not the same as trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So we need to unpack this. What is the gospel? We see there's an inward and outward response. It's with your mouth and with your heart. And notice the if-then statement. If you do these things, you will be saved. What are the things? It says confess with your mouth. Confess means, in the original language, to be in agreement with. So what are we confessing? We're not confessing that Jesus is a good example or he's a good religious teacher. No, we are confessing that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the creator of heavens and earth. He's God Almighty. So you talk about it, not to earn your salvation because Jesus has changed your life. We talk about the stuff that we're excited about. Dude, you've got to hear this band. Or, bro, my shoes, they're amazing. Or, have you had this medicine? It's so helpful. We talk about the things that change our lives. So it's not one and done. Jesus is changing your life. And so you just keep talking about Jesus. And it says believe. And we're not talking about 
a mental agreement with some information. Belief is actually putting your trust in something. So going back to our moon, Saturn V illustration, I found this photo. This is an amazing photo. These are the astronauts. You see way up at the top of the rocket, there's that walkway going over to the command module. There's two of the astronauts walking out to the command module to get ready before launch. And you see that technician behind them in the hard hat. Imagine if you stopped that technician and you said, hey, hey, do you believe that this rocket can take those men to the moon? He's like, yeah, I believe that. But that's not what we're talking about here. If you ask the two astronauts, do you believe that this rocket can take you to the moon? It's a whole different question for those guys because they actually believe the rocket can take them to the moon or they're not getting in that rocket. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a mental agreement with some information. We're talking about putting your trust fully in Jesus Christ to get you to the heaven. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? You're not just saying some words. You actually believe it because you're putting your trust in it. That's what I'm trusting in. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a key part of the gospel. Your fourth blank the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate confirmation of his mission. So all of the key components of the gospel are here in verse 9. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins because he rose from the dead, showing his power over Satan's sin and death. So if you believe that and if you confess that, guess what? You will be saved. Next verse, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's interesting the mouth heart order switches, showing us they're both foundational. Both are necessary. Justified means you have right standing with God at the moment of salvation. And belief, again, is trusting in Jesus to save you. It's not just mentally agreeing with some information. It's no longer about self-righteousness or the best you can or good works, climbing the ladder. It's about God's righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the fifth blank, it's a personal question. It's the most important question of this entire teaching. Have you ever confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Have you? If you haven't, I would love to talk to you, talk to one of my co-pastors, go to the Connections booth. Are you done trying to climb that mountain, trying to climb that ladder to heaven? Are you ready to let the Saturn V rocket known as Jesus Christ take you to the moon? Only people who believe and confess Jesus are going to heaven. Everyone else is bound for hell. Next verse, verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul quotes another Old Testament verse, Isaiah 28. He's saying this has always been the message of the Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's always been about belief in the Lord. There was some that would be, oh, you guys have made up this new thing, believe in Jesus. He's like, no. It's always been in the Bible. It's always been in Scripture. It's always been about belief in God. He's saying here that has been the foundational point of the Old and the New Testament. But this verse does not hit us the way it would have hit the Jewish audience reading this. We don't see the racial implications here because the Jews had this sense, rightly so, that they were God's chosen people. So this idea that the gospel is available to everyone who believes would have been offensive. Wait, 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 wait. You're not, no, no, maybe I misheard you. You're saying everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Don't you mean every Jew will not be put to shame? Remember some of the examples of this in the New Testament. The Jews wouldn't eat with the non-Jews. 
They wouldn't touch non-Jews. They wouldn't even touch things that non-Jews touch. There's this real strong sense the non-Jews are dirty or unclean. Remember the example of Peter not sitting with the Gentiles and Paul had to rebuke him in the New Testament. There's even some prayers from some rabbis that would pray daily, thank God I'm not a woman, not a slave, and not a Gentile. So this verse was a stumbling block to many in the first century that the gospel is offered to everyone. That's a very hard thing to accept. And a comment on that phrase there, not be put to shame. It reminds us of Jesus's words in Luke chapter nine. He said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. So the shame spoken of here is the final judgment when people are humiliated, they're ashamed of Christ, Christ is ashamed of them, and they're sent to hell forever. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, and he won't be ashamed of you. The problem is, we live in a world that is telling us all the time what we should and should not like, what we should and should not be ashamed of. We want people to like us, and we all know, if I talk about this, people won't like it. And if I talk about that, they will like it. And Jesus is one of those topics that is generally not liked in our world. Conversations with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member. We feel this pressure. Oh, I can't bring Jesus into this. I can't bring my faith into this conversation. A small example of this. My wife got a message from one of our kids' teachers a couple weeks ago. A great teacher that's known, taught four of our kids now and had a very encouraging compliment. Said, your kids bring me joy. Their presence is a boost to the whole class. They may not be aware of their impact in a loveless environment, they inspire me. Very kind words from this teacher. It'd be easy to be like, oh, thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you for sharing that with us. But Krista thought, well, we've known this teacher for years. They, he knows our family and knows we're Christians. And this isn't like just our teens are good. Like this is God's love flowing through our teenagers to bless their whole class. So she wrote back, thank you for taking the time to share that. We really love our kids and we pray they would be an encouragement to others. It's good to hear how they're living that out. Thank you for teaching our kids. My wife was convicted. I need to bring a little Jesus into this message. Jesus has changed our life. Do we tell people? Again, we live in this world of likes and dislikes and there are certain things people do not want to hear. And so we don't say it. We minimize our faith. We don't bring up Jesus. We're ashamed of Christ. We're conditioned by our world to care about what people think too much. What will my coworker think? If I talk about Jesus right now in this class, what will my classmates say? If I stand up for the unborn right now, what will people say? If I share the gospel with my coworker, will that jeopardize our relationship? Paul continues this theme. And salvation is offered to everyone. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So Paul has used that phrase Jew and Greek a couple times here. Greek just means non-Jew. So back in chapter one, the famous verse, the kickoff verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So the gospel is available to all people. And then chapter three, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek are under sin. So everybody is a sinner. And then back to our verse in chapter 10, verse 12 again. So the gospel is available to all. Everybody needs it because everybody is a sinner. I think it's kind of humorous to think about the difference between the Jews and the Greeks. 
This is how I thought about it. So the Jews are trying to earn their way to heaven. They're trying to obey all 613 commands. But it's like the guy on the left. He shows up at his job every day, but he's really not doing his, he's failing his job. Like he's there every day, but you're like, bro, you're totally doing it wrong. You're failing. Compare that to the Greeks. They're on the right. You don't see them because they didn't care and they didn't show up. Dude on the left, he shows up every day. He's doing it wrong. Dude on the right didn't even bother to show up. That's what Romans is teaching. Everybody fails to obey God. Everybody needs a savior. And God, thankfully, freely offers salvation to everyone who calls on him. And so ultimately, this comes down to self-righteousness or God's righteousness. I like how Wearsby put it in his commentary. He compared them, works righteousness versus faith righteousness. So on the left, it's only for the Jew. On the right, it's for whosoever. On the left, it's based on works compared to comes by faith alone. On the left, it's all about self-righteousness. On the right, it's all about God's righteousness. On the left, it cannot save you. On the right, it actually brings salvation. On the left, you have to obey the Lord perfectly for that to work. On the right, you just call on the Lord. And then on the left, it leads to pride. On the right, it actually brings glory to God. This chart is as relevant today as it has been for the last 2,000 years. This could be Islam on the left or Buddhism or Hinduism or the predominant faith in our state. Any faith that is trying to work its way to heaven is on the left. And true Christianity is on the right. Our last verse, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is another Old Testament verse from Joel 2. A couple of comments here. I was struck by that phrase, calls on. It reminded me of a verse I taught a couple months ago. 8.30 says, those whom God predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. So some of you are like, wait, I thought God picked us. He did pick us. 8.30. But then others are like, wait, wait, wait. I thought we had to call on the Lord. We do have to call on the Lord. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we rectify this? There are verses all over the Bible that talk about God calling us and verses that talk about us calling on God. On the back of your handout, I have two different lists of verses if you want to dig into it. If you're sitting here right now and you go, have I been called by God? Am I part of the elect? Am I predestined? What is your command in our verse? Call on God. And what happens? You will be saved. I actually love it that the Bible has concepts that are like above our brain power. Some Christians diminish God's sovereignty. They ignore verses like 830 and they have a weak God that's just along on the ride with them. Other Christians diminish our responsibility. They ignore verses like 1013, making us into robots. That's not biblical either. But as we bring this to a close, I don't want you to miss the simplicity of the gospel again here in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the gospel? We just read it in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. So our attempts to get to the moon are over. We get on the Saturn V rocket and we go to the moon. And notice it doesn't say, call on the Lord and do the best you can and you will be saved. It says, call on the Lord and you will be saved. It's like that astronaut sitting there on the left. He's riding in the, the command module. He's enjoying the ride. He's looking out the window, enjoying the view. But imagine if he started to panic. He's like, oh, 
I don't know if we're going to get to the moon. And he like starts flapping his wings in there. And he's like, I've got to get out of this ship and push. And so he like opens the hatch and he crawls out and he like grabs on the ship and he's like kicking his legs and blowing aggressively. That'll help us. That'll get us to the moon. Your six blank, your final blank. Are you enjoying the ride? Or are you trying to help Jesus along the way? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Unbeliever, it is time to get on the rocket known as Jesus Christ. Believer, enjoy the ride. You're going to the moon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this section, God. I thank you that our days of trying to earn our way to heaven are over when we become a Christian. Lord, we thank you that your standard is so perfect, so impossible, Lord. Help us not to be self-righteous and proud and think we can work our way to heaven, Lord. Help us just to surrender to you. And we ask, God, that if there's anyone here that has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that they would quit trying to climb that religious mountain. They would just simply reach out to you with the empty hand of faith and that you would save them. Lord, I thank you, God, that you were... You became a man. It's what we celebrate right now. You came down. You were incarnated because you loved us so much. You wanted to save us. Lord, I thank you, God, that the gospel is easy. It is near, and it is something that a child can do. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We say all this in your name. Amen.